Coming up today, we talk about the juicy business of plant-based meat and the equally juicy business of Russian censorship. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business, and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when the flight taking the Queen's Coffin to London became the most tracked in history, according to the website Flight Radar 24. Almost 6 million people followed the plane's route as it took off from Edinburgh on its way to RAF Northholt. And it was also the week when the billionaire founder of clothing brand Patagonia has given away his company to a charitable trust. Now, any profit not reinvested in running the business will go towards fighting climate change. And the founder says this will amount to around $100 million a year being donated. And finally, this was the week when Twitter shareholders voted to approve Elon Musk's $44 billion takeover deal. The move, which is mostly a formality at this stage, means Twitter's lawsuit with Musk can go ahead next month. I bet Elon Musk is absolutely delighted that the thing he attempted to buy may now end up being his. Well done to him. Now, if you were paying close... Oh, yes, go on, Matt. So I need a bit of a refresher on this because it was going ahead and then Musk changed his mind, I think. So... The fact that Twitter has approved this means that Musk is disputing it because he doesn't want it to be sold to him. Is that, is that what's going on here? Yes, that is exactly what's going on here. He, he, made, he, made, the, he made the offer to buy it. Um, and then there was the thing with the bots, right? What number of users does Twitter actually have? How authentic are those users? He asked for more data than Twitter was seemingly willing to provide, or so he claimed. Um, the whole thing's a bit of a mess. But yes, it now seems that Elon Musk doesn't want to buy Twitter. Twitter maybe doesn't want Elon Musk to buy Twitter, but Twitter's board has decided that Elon Musk should buy Twitter. And so now, legally, Elon Musk probably has to buy Twitter. But we'll find out when it goes to... It's the Court of Chancery, isn't it? Um, In Delaware, which is going to be good fun. We'll be all over it. So, wired.com to find out. Will Elon Musk have to buy a thing he attempted to buy? All right, um, if you were paying close attention last week, you might have noticed that there was no podcast... Um, We actually recorded the whole thing, only to discover after the fact that Matt Reynolds' recording hadn't worked. Uh, So we thought long and hard about putting out a Matt Reynolds-less podcast, but seeing as he's going to talk to us about plant-based meat, just having, what, like 15 minutes of someone asking questions, there then being a really long silence, maybe with some weird mouth noises, and then another question, and then more silence. Anyway, we're going to do it again, and it's going to be even better. Um, And also I'm back, which is kind of nice. Um, so I've been away for about, what, six weeks? Um, I sound the same, but I'm in a very different place. I now live in Montreal in Canada. Um, so I've been a, a loyal podcast listener these past five or six weeks, listening to all of your thrilling facts. So hit me with some. Matt Reynolds, what did you learn this week? Well, I learned two weeks ago, uh, as, 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 uh, as you were saying, this is the podcast that never was, but now kind of is. I learned about a phenomenon called the Fat Man Club. And this was this thing in 19th century America. And there were these social clubs where 
you had to weigh over 91 kilos in order to be a member. So what's that, like 190 pounds, nearly 200 pounds. Um, and actually, it was a really, really big thing because being fat was kind of associated with having excess wealth. There's this idea of like a kind of benevolent, uh, fat, older man. I guess like not totally unlike Santa Claus. Um, and at its peak, the New England Fat Men's Club had 10,000 members, but it all wrapped up by around 1930 or so where you know, being overweight kind of went out of fashion. And was no longer caused to be in a social club. <laughs> yeah, or maybe maybe there were actually too many members and they thought, oh, this isn't very exclusive anymore, we're going to have to find a new club. But it's actually kind of interesting because it's all about how uh, weight is kind of perceived by society and what is kind of desirable. And I think, you know, anecdotally, people talk about that, you know, Queen Victoria, you know, you know, weighed a bit more and that was because that was seen as kind of regal at the time, but very, you know, we live in a pretty different era now. Thank you for mentioning Queen Victoria because... That gives us the perfect segue into Matt Burgess's fact about Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, and this was not one that we uh, were including last week on the podcast for obvious reasons. But um, at the moment, as we're recording this, um, people are doing the very uniquely British thing uh, of queuing uh, a huge and long way across London uh, to see uh, Queen Elizabeth's body lying in state. Um, And essentially this queue is looking like it's going to be about five miles long with people being predicted that they've got to wait to up to uh, anywhere between sort of like 12 and at the highest estimates 30 hours to be able to go and see uh, the queen for one final time but this got me thinking about like what is the longest ever queue um and i couldn't find like a really solid answer because people don't necessarily measure things like that but according to the guinness world records the longest ever line which is people this was defined as people joining hands uh, into a form into form a human chain. Uh, it stretched for one thousand and fifty kilometers, which is six hundred and fifty two miles in Bangladesh. As people were um, essentially, uh, it was a political protest, but there were five million people that made up the entire chain of people. Just to go back a bit, thirty hours is the the high end of the estimate for how long people might be in line. Um, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary amount of time. And you've got to imagine that's going to break some records, right? If the queue stretches for 10 miles across the entire length of not even central London, I mean, it's going to head out really far east if it gets to 10 miles. We've got to be breaking some records there, surely. Yeah, I think so. There was actually, I was, when I was looking into this as well, there were um, previously in the 1950s, uh, before the Queen was uh, made the Queen uh, for the previous King, whose name I have now forgotten. Was it King George who was before uh, Queen Elizabeth? I'm going to half confidently say yes, it was. I may or may not be a royalist, but carry on. Yeah, there were... Uh, for that, there were similar sort of queues taking place. So there are some pictures from the 1950s of like huge queues through the centre of London. And apparently around 300,000 people uh, went to see the king's former body then at that stage. So um, I imagine it's going to be pretty comparable, but um, I guess we'll have to see over the next few days. The wild logistics of really long queues. Well, it's going to be a very interesting few days in the UK. I'm Sad to not be there, but also in some ways glad to be on the other side of the world. All right. Our first story this week is about plant-based meat, which is peak Matt Reynolds. You've spoken on the podcast before about the hope that people switching to plant-based meat could lower the carbon footprint of their diets, which is something that we've received a lot of emails about. Um, And there's been a lot of hype around plant-based meats over the last couple of years. But most recently, you've been looking into how the hype has died down and what that might mean for the future of the plant-based meat industry. That's right. So 
plant-based meat has gone through quite a concentrated hype cycle, you know, where something gets really, really exciting and then suddenly everyone's like, no, this thing is never going to happen. This is stupid. It's not a solution. So I just want to, you know, fill you in on this kind of wild roller coaster that we've kind of gone on this last two or three years or so. So over the last couple of years, listeners are probably familiar. They've probably heard more about plant-based meats than at like any other time during their lives. It's probably partly due to me. and I'm, I'm sorry about that, but it's mainly driven by this next generation of vegan burgers and these are usually associated with impossible foods and beyond meat there's actually a bunch of companies in the space but impossible and beyond have really really drove this and beyond story is actually pretty remarkable so it went public uh, listed on the stock exchange in may 2019 and at the time its share price more than doubled it soared by 163 percent which actually was the most successful opening day for a company since 2008. That's not like just for a food company, that's for any company. So this is including tech stocks like Facebook or Twitter. Um, Beyond Meat's IPO was more successful than any company in that period. And then during the pandemic, we saw things get even better. So meat supply chains were disrupted. You might remember there was actually some really bad outbreaks in um, slaughterhouses in the US in particular. And so at the end of 2020, sales of plant-based meats were up 46%. It was really hailed as, you know, this kind of time where meat supply chains were disrupted and everyone was like, you know, plant-based doesn't have the same problem. It shows how it's a solution for food security. It shows how it's becoming parts of people's diets. And around that same time, lots of fast food brands started launching their own vegan products. We saw that at KFC, we saw that at Burger King, so at McDonald's in the in the UK as well. Now after that, things started to slow down. So in the US, sales of plant-based meat in 2021 were actually completely flat compared to 2020 levels. And over that same period, Beyond Meat's share price has tumbled. It's like 14% of what it was at its peak. US has the U- In the US, McDonald's has discontinued its trials uh, with the McPlant burger. And so there have been a bunch of articles saying basically, look, we overhyped it. Our hopes of plant-based meat were way too optimistic. I'm going to do that odious thing where I ask you to come down on one side or the other, because truly this must be black and white, right? Either plant-based meat is the saviour of the world, or it's a load of rubbish and it's going to fizzle out and we're never going to hear from it again. So, has the plant-based meat revolution, if you like, run out of steam before it even ever got started? There can only be one answer and you have to pick your side and you have to agree with it uh, unrelentingly and never change your mind. No, I'm going to do that annoying thing in response and say that I actually think that we're thinking about this in the wrong way. And look, I'll be fair, James, I set you up for that. So, you know, it's a fair question to ask, led up to it. And now I'm going to pull the rug and say, I think we need to be asking like an even more basic question. And that's what the hell are plant-based meats meant to be for in the first place? And that sounds kind of stupid and dismissive, but I think it's actually really important. So there's lots of ways to imagine how future sales of plant-based meats might go up. So imagine sales went up really well and beyond, uh, you know, beyond meat share price like skyrocketed because loads of people were buying more vegan burgers. But actually all that happened was that people were swapping their vegetables for soy burgers. Or imagine if the same thing happened, be uh, plant-based meat sales went up. But actually what was happening is that people were supplementing their beef and chicken burgers with even more protein. So protein consumption has kind of gone up over time. And imagine if it just carried on going up, but now the extra was just uh, plant-based or it was plant-based and beef. So both of those situations would be really good for plant-based companies, plant-based meat companies, but it wouldn't really deliver on what I think is the main goal of this 
uh, this business and this kind of movement. And it's the reason we're talking about it and the reason people are excited. And that's because there's this promise of reducing the climate impact of our diets. And that means mainly reducing meat intake. And specifically, that means reducing beef and lamb, lamb consumption. So I think a better thing to ask rather than, you know, is it, is it a solution or are these share prices going up? Is are people swapping meat for plant-based alternatives? And more specifically, are they swapping beef for plant-based um, meat alternatives? And are they doing it consistently? That seems like the real question to ask if you want to work out, is plant-based meat working as a solution? You got me thinking about one of one of the hypotheticals you've outlined there, where, where someone might say, swap the carrots on their plate with a steak, a beef steak, with a plant-based burger... So you'd have a steak, a plant-based burger, and some gravy or something. This seems like quite an odd thing to do, to take like lovely fresh vegetables and replace it with something that is trying to be meat, to have alongside your meat. So, um, I, I mean, maybe people are. People eat weird things. Um, so are they, are they doing the good thing? Are they swapping that big slab of beef a big slab of plants okay no that's a good point and i think to be clear that hypothetical situation doesn't really seem to be the case but i suppose it's a good example of how looking at an indicator like stock price or total sales doesn't really tell us like is this thing working like another example might be say certain designations of organic crops you could say great um the sale of tomatoes has gone up by 200% because everyone's paying more for tomatoes. But unless that also means that tomatoes are being more efficient or are being farmed better, p buying more doesn't necessarily equal impact or equal the good thing. But yeah, I, I think personally, maybe it's a bit unlikely that you know, you'd have a burger to accompany your burger. But hey, you know, people eat all kinds of weird things. But um, yeah, so on, so on to this question of whether uh, plant-based meats really are displacing uh, real meat or conventional meat. This is like a really tricky one to answer. But People are asking and trying to answer this question because it is so important. And I'll just take you through how exactly this data is, is gathered. So the best data we have generally comes from the US. And it, there are two sources. So one is survey data. So you go to a person, and you say, oh, hey, James, what did you eat last week? And by the way, if a plant-based burger cost half as much, would you eat that tomorrow versus a beef burger or something like that. So survey data, asking people what they would intend to do. And then uh, analysis of supermarket shopping carts. And basically, obviously, I guess everyone's familiar that when you shop, you get your stuff scanned. Well, basically, researchers can link that scanning information, I think especially if people are part of certain schemes, uh, to virtual shopping baskets and then look how people's shopping behaviour changes over time, like within a supermarket, but also within a household. And if we take those two chunks of data that we've got, these two different sources of data, where we're left at the moment in the US is that we've got relatively little evidence that plant-based meats are displacing conventional meat. And I'll, I'll just run you quickly through this evidence. So one study tracked the buying habits using that scanner data of around 40,000 US households over two years. And it found that people who bought plant-based meat at least once in that period over two years, they actually ended up buying slightly more ground meat after their first purchase 
of a meat alternative. Although it's fair to say that these households tended to spend less on ground meat overall compared to those that never purchased meat alternatives. That's a little hard to pass. So basically what that suggests is it's people that didn't eat much meat to begin with. They maybe buy a little bit of plant-based meat, but don't continually buy it. So it's never really displacing this ground beef because it wasn't necessarily in their diets to begin with. And over time, because of reversion to the mean, the fact that over time people tend to go back to the average of how people behave, they ended up buying a little bit more ground meat. So basically, in this case, doesn't seem like it displaced much. Um, Another way to figure out this impact is to look at how price changes impact the demand for different kinds of meat. And A study of retail data from a couple of years ago showed that when the price of plant-based meats went down, demand for them went up. But when the price of animal meats fluctuated, demand for those products didn't fluctuate as widely. And the study also found that rather than displacing red meat, plant-based meat tend to be bought along beef and pork, bought alongside beef and pork, and usually seem to be a substitute for chicken, turkey and fish, which is actually kind of bad because chicken, turkey and fish have pretty low carbon footprints. If you take these things together, what this really suggests to me and the researchers that I spoke with is that people see beef as this mainstay of their dinner plate. So it's kind of always there a couple of meals a week, maybe more, Um, while other forms of protein come and go. And so plant might displace chicken. You know, if chicken's really expensive one week, maybe they'll buy plant-based instead and vice versa. But it does suggest that people see this as an extra source of protein, um, rather than a direct replacement for meat, and certainly rather than a direct replacement for beef. Something that you mentioned there was price, right? So habits are formed and are very hard to break, but one way of breaking them is by showing people that they can save money. And at the moment, plant-based meats can't necessarily do that, particularly when we're talking about, I think you mentioned, um, people who bought plant-based meat continue to buy the same amount of ground meat, which is which is cheap, right, compared to um, a prime cut, let's say. So where are we at with this? Do you feel that there's still an opportunity for plant-based meats to come in and be a climate crisis solution, if not the climate crisis solution we hope they might be, that, but to start shifting the dial a bit? Or are we kind of doomed to keep these same habits unless the price can come way down? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. One, I think it's too early to say that plant-based meat is or isn't working. So maybe in the US, we don't have great data to suggest it is working. A couple of other countries, it's a bit different, but I'll get into it in a second. And I think the second point is to say that there's lots of different ways in which it might work. So maybe actually if we just slow the um, growth of beef consumption or slow the growth of meat consumption overall, actually that might be what success looks like. So maybe that's, um, you know, maybe that's good. You know, it's really hard to think about this counterfactual that is... But if plant-based meat didn't exist, how would beef consumption have continued in the future? And I think that we should actually maybe not set such a high bar that like you have to, everyone has to switch. You might say, look, if we see demand increasing at a slower rate than we might um, expect, you know, given population increase and stuff, um, maybe that's a good thing. And then I think the third thing is actually, although it's too early to say it's a solution, I think the fundamentals are pretty good. So... You mentioned price, and in the US, plant-based burger patties are around 65% more expensive than animal-based burgers. Now, survey data suggests that if there was price parity, around 20 to 30% of people, given a choice between two otherwise equivalent uh, burgers, one plant-based, one um, 
uh, beef-based, uh, 20 to 30 percent of people would choose the plant-based option. And now that suggests that if we can reach parity on price and reach parity on taste, you know, I've had some of these burgers that they're pretty good, that actually a significant chunk of people might make these changes, maybe not 20 to 30 percent, but maybe 15, you know, maybe 10, which is more than we're seeing at the moment. And there are some signs this is happening elsewhere in the world. So in the Netherlands, meat prices are so high that cost parity has already been reached. Germany is quite similar as well. So Germany's meat consumption is is declining really rapidly um, at the same time as plant-based protein sales have doubled. I think I... I might be misquoting this because I just read it the other day, but I think year on year meat sales in Germany are, are down 11% or something really high uh, and, and also down reasonably consistently. And part of the story there is not only price, meat prices in Germany are much higher than in the, in the US as well. But um, there the government has really embraced eating less meat as a way to tackle climate change. So the Ministry of Food and Agriculture has really said, look, this is part of our plan. It's one, one quarter of our uh, four pillars that, that we've got. And I think that shows that if you get some of these fundamentals like taste and price and you combine that with government support, you start to see really what the potential of this might be. But, um, you know, it does require those things being in place. Yeah. And obviously a number of countries in Europe are going through a real cost of living crisis as we go into winter. And you guys spoke about this on the podcast a few weeks ago skyrocketing fuel bills if people are looking at ways to save a bit of money if you're in a country where meat is really expensive then you might start to cut more of it out of your diet and look to save a bit of money at the tills so to wrap this up we've got a combination of falling prices for plant-based meat that will happen over time particularly as it scales up and in certain regions there's increased government support that this kind of shift might be a good thing to do not just for you but for the whole planet and don't we want to help out on that cause as a society too so there's there's a cause for optimism here maybe if you leave aside the united states and its rapacious appetite for beef yeah i think that's true um i i, def- I definitely think there is cause for optimism but there is one last spanner that i want to throw in to the works and even though we get so excited and i've talked about it a bunch on the podcast about plant-based meat if you're looking retroactively if you're going to say, what's the big shift in meat consumption over the last 50 years? It's not plant-based meat, it's not beef, it's chicken. It's like overwhelmingly chicken. So Americans now eat around two and a half more times as much chicken as they did in 1971. And a little bit of that has come from um, beef. So I think beef consumption has kind of uh, flatlined or declined slightly over the last 10 or 15 years. But most of this is just from an increase in meat consumption per capita, per capita. So it's true in the UK as well. We're just eating more meat than at any time in history. And although this is a win in terms of emissions, it's one of the reasons why, although we're eating more meat, dietary emissions in the US and the UK, I think, have declined over time. So we are kind of headed in the right direction. But chicken still has a higher environmental impact than plant-based meat. And because you need loads and loads of chickens, um, you know, it's an ethical problem as well because they, ha- they live worse lives. And Hannah Ritchie at Our World and Data wrote an op-ed for us like a, a little while ago on this whole idea that chickens are better for the environment, but they're worse from an animal welfare point of view. So there's this whole uh, trade-off. So I think there's this really interesting question where you've got all these dynamics going on. We've got chicken that solves one problem, kind of causes another problem. It's maybe not as good as plant-based, but it's definitely better uh, than beef or some other problem. So um, yeah, I just think that you're, you kind of want to look at this whole um, holistic picture and think like, well, where really are we headed? How does fish like um, come into this? How do other things come into this? Um, and yeah, and, and really, who knows where we're headed? 
one stat that was in the piece that you wrote, um, which made me raise both eyebrows a few times. Global meat consumption is expected to increase 14% by 2030 and it's a lot of these statistics where things that we wouldn't assume should be going up are going up those those numbers are being driven by parts of the world where traditionally meat consumption has been quite low so that the the way to move this is maybe counterintuitively is for countries like the united states like the united kingdom regions like western europe to cut back on meat consumption to a can to kind of even out that peak that's being or that that increase that's being driven by other parts of the world, metifying, if you like. So it's really encouraging to see those changes happening in Germany. And I guess it's on governments all over the world to encourage people that maybe they should switch up what's in their baskets. Podcast at wired.co.uk. If you're starting to make those switches, if you're struggling to, I don't know, if you're, if you're swapping out beef for chicken, and maybe now you're thinking about swapping out chicken for soy burgers, how are you coming to terms with this in terms of cost and quality of diet, environmental impacts. This is always one that gets people talking. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Podcast at wired.co.uk. For our second story this week, we're turning to Russia and how Vladimir Putin has clamped down on people's freedoms even more since his troops began their invasion of Ukraine in February. Matt Burgess, tell us some more. So since uh, February 24th, the, the Kremlin has severely clamped down on the freedoms of people living within Russia, restricting their human rights and ability to access information that isn't the country's propaganda. So to give you a quick rundown of some of the, the bigger things that uh, have happened in the last six months, if people haven't been following this quite as closely as others, uh, there was initially a clampdown on social media. So we saw Facebook and Instagram and other platforms being blocked very very early on after the start of the invasion. Um, since then, the Kremlin has taken on uh, virtual pri private networks, VPNs, which allow people to essentially uh, tell the internet that they are in a different place to where they actually are in the world. So a VPN could use, uh, could show you being in Denmark when you are actually in Russia. So it allows you to access information that might be blocked within that country. Um, the Kremlin has also tried to block the anonymity service Tor. It's declared opposition groups as foreign agents, which is something it has been doing for a while, but has increased in recent months. And one recent analysis of websites blocked in Russia says that there have been more than 600,000 sites blocked by the country's censors in the last decade, with a huge increase happening uh, in the last year up to around March uh, 2022. Among those blocked websites are scores of independent news media. These are journalists and news outlets reporting on what the Kremlin is doing from inside the country, trying to hold the government to account and not just running propaganda lines or, or being state-controlled media. It's a really, really comprehensive operation. Um, Russia has always had this kind of power to control what people do and do not see within its borders. But the picture that you paint is one of like an enormous increase in the activity around censorship. So I guess with the truth being even more important 
at a time when Russia is potentially committing war crimes. You know, people in Russia need to know what the country is doing. Is there a way for people to access the truth to get to these blocked websites? Yeah, there are a few. And I pretty much just mentioned a couple of them in that bit of description. But just to go back on that point around just the scale of this as well. One of the people that I was speaking to when I was reporting this story essentially was was made the point that while a lot of uh, Russia's efforts in Ukraine have failed and not lived up to what its own expectations would have been, due to a lot of reasons. One thing that Russia can do and is doing very well is blocking and uh, stopping access to media and stuff that it doesn't like within its own borders. It's been very successful. Its censorship machine, as well as, it, as, well as its sort of propaganda machine, is very powerful and effective. But if people do want to get around these inside Russia, there are uh, the things such as VPNs, as I just mentioned, also Tor. Um, and one of the big uh, sort of things about both of these tools is that they require some technical knowledge or taking steps to use them this can be as simple as downloading one of the apps um, but really uh, if you don't have any sort of like technical background or understanding of how these types of systems work you might not choose to use them and in recent weeks i've been reporting around a new tool that is uh, trying to help people avoid censorship without having any technical knowledge at all it's called samizdat online and it allows people to dodge censorship in russia and also other surrounding region regions and places where uh, the news media and websites are blocked just by accessing websites on the open internet and they don't need any technical knowledge to do so which is potentially huge right if it works and if word gets out to enough people that there is a way to find alternative sources of news that aren't controlled by the russian state but before we get into the nuts and bolts of how it operates i mean the, the name suggests maybe that it's an idea that's rooted in russian history right sam is that actually the word comes from the former Soviet Union and it was a practice that people uh, would do during those times to self-publish banned media and circulate it through underground networks. So some of the people involved in Samizdat Online told me that in uh, Soviet Union times it was quite risky to uh, be in possession or be producing Samizdat. Uh, people could be, uh, if they were caught with paper copies of it, copies of it they could be arrested or fined or imprisoned so the idea is something that's been around a while but um there are sort of like associated risks with this i guess term and also just sort of the movement behind it, it it's a underground movement altogether which was paper-based then and is technically based now so how does this website work and how does it eliminate the need for lots of complicated technical know-how that might be involved in using a vpn or tor in short, it uses random domain names. So every time, uh, to use an example, uh, you access the website of the Moscow Times um, using Samizdat Online, which the Moscow Times is blocked in Russia, it will show the website on a different domain name. So for instance, when I open the homepage using this new tool, I am shown the Moscow Times uh, website on uh, a domain which is sfzgohtwrm.net and then there's a forward slash and then there's a long string of like 50 to 100 characters uh, which essentially have all of the website's uh, data encoded in it so in that sort of like long string of numbers after uh, the main part of the, or the initial part of the url uh, there's all these details which say about what page i'm trying to access how that website should be displayed when it's being shown on my website um such as the css code um and then that process pretty much repeats so if i was to access the moscow times on that link and then click onto an article on their homepage, uh the latest news article for instance it would take me to another domain um which uh in this instance was 
at raul.help um, and then that's followed by a long string of encoded data again another tick take another click takes you to a different domain on f- showing stuff from the moscow times and essentially this works by uh sam is that online having two different servers um that make this possible they're uh, the first server of this is one that checks to see if domains are blocked within Russia. So it will come up with these random list of domains. Like I think they've registered more than around 100 different domains at the second. Um, and they are, um, if they're not blocked, then this second server registers that domain name and then makes it available, makes all the data available to people who are trying to access it essentially. So there's a couple of different parts to it, but in reality, what it is showing you is um, a website that is blocked, but it's showing you it on a unblocked domain and syndicating that content across, essentially. So they're having to scrape the the censored internet, if you like, right, and store a different copy of that website. And then they hide that website behind a random domain name with all of the data encoded in, it, in a URL. So this is a way of specifically accessing the censored internet within Russia, but it's like a local version of it. Pretty much, yeah. It's basically like a simple way to think of it is a slight mirror of the existing site that is blocked. And it's worth pointing out that that website, while it's blocked in Russia, isn't blocked everywhere else. So people can access it and create the mirror from it. Um, They're not as far as I'm aware, they're not like storing the whole site every time. It's more based on if I were to go to their service, then click on on their homepage, for instance, click on the Moscow Times, then it would sort of like pull that information in real time from that page. So it's not like storing a full copy of the website, but it's more doing it on demand, really, as far as I understand it. Yeah, and, and using kind of using the mirroring process and the weird domain thing that it's doing is a bridge between the uncensored internet outside of Russia and the censored internet inside but for web sensors inside russia they'll just see a load of people accessing a load of domains that they've never heard of before so it's maybe then it becomes a bit of a game of cat and mouse right between the organization running samizdat online and russian sensors who are going okay well raul.help is actually the moscow times so we're going to block that domain but then they just switch to another one and the idea being that Samizdat can outpace the sensors in that way. Yeah, and that's where these couple of servers that they have sort of exist as well, because um, they're they're checking to see if these sites have been blocked by Russian sensors, and if they're not, they then start to register automatically, well, if they are, sorry, then they will register a new domain automatically, and basically that process is quicker than trying the Russian sensors trying to block it. And uh, in recent times, sort of in the last few weeks and months, Samizdat Online has been in stealth mode for a little while, so it's been basically developing and producing its technology and during that time it signed up a dozen or so different media outlets in russia uh, and also some in belarus and one of these has had some success already so the website of a uh, belarusian um lifestyle publication called ky ky which is pronounced cuckoo um was blocked in Belarus in the summer of 2020, and it started using Samizdat Online a couple of months ago. It promoted this service to its readership, and essentially all of the people that, uh, all of the number of people that were accessing it before it was blocked returned using this system. So um, they got a, around, a, I think, around 150,000 people a day using Samizdat Online to access the content of uh, Cuckoo. Um, so readers have come back using this and really like. The promotion of that from the website itself made a uh, a huge difference to people being able to access it. And one of the the key points that sort of Samizdat Online 
point out is that the URLs are just URLs that you can access in any browser at any time and could easily be done so you don't need to download any software or stuff like that so um like there is if there is a bit of risk to this as well if people within um if sensors within Russia can see that people are accessing uh, lots of really random domains and are monitoring to a very individual level, there might be a, a case for them being able to sort of identify that people are accessing banned media. Um, but that sort of depends on if um, they're tracking people down to an individual level um, and people that would uh, potentially be at most threat of these types of things are most likely to be using a VPN or Tor anyway. And the creators of this essentially said that because they've used the name Sam is that online, there is a little bit of recognition within the within the population that this is uh, this carries a little bit of sort of risk. It isn't something that the government obviously want in Russia wants people doing. Yeah, this is a, a way of dodging censorship out in the open, if you like, right? But the idea being that it's underground enough that the authorities might not notice. I'd be interested to get your views on this, Matt. You, you said that, you know, one of the aims of Samizdat is to help people who are put off by the technical hurdles of things like Tor or VPNs, enabling them to access census content. So let's, let's pull up a hypothetical example. Um, an elderly person lives in Moscow, gets all of their news through state-controlled television. So they think the war, sorry, the special military operation in Ukraine is going just great and that Vladimir Putin is the best person on the planet. Is, is this a way of, of reaching them or is it by its very nature kind of a, a bit as a sort of a bit of an underground network? It's kind of preaching to the converted is this going to move the dial, if you like, on on the power of Russian censorship by those that it really needs to reach? It's a really tricky one to assess, but I imagine that in a case, that you, the hypothetical case, which probably is also a real case that you're talking about, those people that are very ardently pro-Putin, believe the state's propaganda and stuff like that, wouldn't necessarily have their minds convinced by something like this if they can access some of that information. But for the creators of this that I was speaking to were essentially saying that they want this to be just another way that people who may have doubts or may want to access information can do so and then they can easily share it with people that may be influenced like there there will be a subset of people that um if they found out more about what was really going on um would potentially change their mind or change their view a little bit and sort of the third parties that i spoke to really that um have looked at the tool and also say uh looked at other uh anti-censorship tools as well say that there's for all types of censorship and these types of propaganda, there's no one silver bullet that will make a difference to things. But another tool that is slightly easier to use can uh, can be a little bit useful. So I also spoke to uh, some of the, uh, the, the senior people at Medusa, which is Russia's biggest independent media website, which is going to start using Samizdat online soon. And their executive editor told me that um, they don't see this as driving huge amounts of readership back to them but it's just another way that people uh who aren't techno technologically literate can uh potentially access more independent independent media so maybe it might won't make a huge difference but it's just another way that it could help people that are suffering from uh yeah media censorship in russia yeah and, and as you say if a handful of people use this service and then have conversations with people who are never going to use this service there's no chance in hell and that starts to get them asking questions and it sort of spreads and spreads and spreads and i guess that was the idea of samizdat in the soviet union times was that if just a few people 
can be circulating this kind of information and it starts to kind of leach out into the general population, then maybe you can start to make a difference at scale. So what comes next? You mentioned Medusa signing up, which feels like a pretty big deal. What are the future plans for the service? Yeah, so Medusa should have signed up uh, in between the first recording of this podcast and the second recording of this podcast. Um, so essentially that they are trying to sign up more people within the Russian mediascape, but they're also looking to expand this service over time as well to to work in other countries where uh, media are censored. So the, the founders of it said that they want to target China and, and other places as well where uh, there's a, a lack of sort of uh, freedom of expression and things for people. Um, I think that that will see over time how much of a difference that makes. But I think that at the second, it's something that is new that could be used and could be useful for people. And time will tell how much that makes a difference or not. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch about that story or anything else that we talked about on the podcast this week or if you're going back through the archive on previous weeks as well now then there's one email in the inbox this week or last week seeing as we're doing this podcast twice thank you very much matt reynolds Who's been in touch? That's right. So Joanna wrote in with my favourite kind of email, which is a correction email. I am always happy to accept these. It's about a story that I was talking about, which was Europe's plan to wean itself off of Russia's gas. In the story, I mentioned that Lithuania in the past fully relies on Russian gas. And Joanna wrote in to say that this isn't totally true. Lithuania was the first EU country to stop Russian gas imports early in April. And she went on to say, Lithuania and all Baltic countries have a difficult history and difficult relations with Russia and have always been a bit suspicious of Russia and Belarus since Soviet occupation. It's almost like our toxic ex that we can see right through, even when it was pretending to be nice before attacking Ukraine. So, yeah, very happy to make that point. I think I think I was meant to be talking about in the past, as I understand Lithuania around 2014 or previously was very dependent on Russia gas. Um, but you're totally right that actually it has completely stopped imports in the in the wake of the, the Ukrainian war. So, um, yeah, thanks for writing in, Joanna. Yeah, thank you, Joanna, for your email. Podcast.wide.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show. We do love hearing from you. That's just about it for this week and last week as well, I guess. Um, We'll be back again same time next week. We promise, barring any technical hiccups. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.